On June 25, 1950, North Korea launched a surprise invasion against South Korea and started a war that has not yet been formally ended. It was, however, almost a short war. The North Korean invasion force consisted of more than 100 Soviet tanks and an air force, all armaments that had devastated the German army on the Eastern Front during the Second World War only five years previously. By contrast, the South Korean army had no tanks and an air force composed solely of reconnaissance planes. Predictably, South Korea's capital Seoul fell in three days, and by August, the North Korean forces had nearly reached the southern port city of Busan, the last pocket of territory held by the Republic of Korea. And had it not been for the intervention of the United Nations forces, South Korea as we know it would not exist. This episode is a rebroadcast of an interview with Colonel John Stevens, a veteran of the Korean War who fought at the Battle of the Nakdong River to defend that last pocket of South Korean resistance around the port of Busan. He also participated in the amphibious landing at Incheon that turned the tide of the war. He is both participant and witness in an incredible moment in history. After the interview, please stay tuned for a brief letter from KAI President and CEO Ambassador Stevens. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute in Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Yang Kwan, and you're listening to Korean Context. When the Second World War ended, you were serving in the Pacific theater of the war. You not only got to see parts of Japan after the war, but also northern China. That is correct. At the end of the war, the 1st Marine Division stayed in Okinawa, preparing for the invasion of Japan. When that didn't take place, when we had peace, the 1st Division was sent to North China to repatriate the Japanese. We had our headquarters at Qingwangtao on the border of Manchuria, and the 6th Marine Division was sent to Tsingtao. The division stayed there for several years. I stayed until about April or May of 1946, and I returned. The Japanese were waiting for us when we landed at Tinsen, and they had put all of their weapons away. They were the best possible prisoners you ever saw. Did you have the sense then that there would be a conflict between the victors of the war in the region so soon after the war? No, I did not. Do you remember when you first heard of the news on the Korean War? I was only in Hollywood, California from Camp Pendleton. We had just completed a number of exercises, and I was on 10 days leave. I received a telegram from my commanding officer telling me to get back to Camp Pendleton. Was that kind of message atypical for someone in the Marines? Oh, it was a wake-up call. Marine Corps figured out that if there's a war someplace like that, Chances are the Marine Corps will be in it. When you had heard that there was a conflict on the Korean Peninsula, had you heard about a country called Korea before? No, brand new. At the moment the war began, you were a commanding officer of Able Company, 1st Battalion of the 5th Marines, and your company was deployed first to the Busan perimeter where the South Korean forces had been forced to retreat to 
after the North Korean surprise attack. You were, of course, a veteran of the Second World War. What about your fellow soldiers in the company? Were they also veterans of the Second World War when they were first deployed to Korea? 90% of the officers were World War II veterans. Wow. And 67% of the staff non-commissioned officers were World War II veterans. So very experienced troops were the first people on the front lines when the war began. Yes. But these men were also facing a very desperate situation. The South Koreans had lost immense amounts of territory. Essentially, there were only a few miles between the front line and the southern edge of South Korea. Could you elaborate what the situation was like on the Busan perimeter, particularly what the situation was like on No Name Ridge? Initially, when we boarded a ship in San Diego, we were headed for Japan. Before we got to Japan, the situation was so desperate that General Walker needed all the troops he could get. Now, you mentioned No Name Ridge. Actually, there were three separate breakthroughs of the Nactal Line that we stopped. One at the southwest corner, and then twice at the Nactal. North Greens were intent to take in Pusan, mm-hmm. chasing everybody off the peninsula. Now, you asked, what was our feelings? And our troops, they're going to combat. That's what they trained for. And The Marines did an incredible job. South Korea persevered during those months of offense on the Busan perimeter. The next phase of the war was to take the fighting to the North Koreans. And to turn the tide of the war, the UN forces made a very ambitious amphibious landing in Incheon. And you and your company really led that operation. Could you describe your feelings about the operation when you first heard of it, and how did you hear about it? On the night of the 6th of September, we were pulled out of the Nactong battle, brought back to Busan to get ready for an invasion someplace. We didn't know where. And also to take on more troops to bring us up to strength. Mm-hmm. Now, part of my uh, troops, I had a platoon of South Korean policemen attached to me during the time I was in South Korea. And they were real good fighters. Does that also describe how desperate the situation was, where South Korea didn't have enough troops, so they were also taking on policemen for the fighting? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think one thing that's noteworthy is that the South Korean troops that we dealt with were excellent soldiers. So when you heard about the counteroffensive, you didn't quite yet learn where that would be. They wanted to keep it a secret, and they didn't tell us until after we were underway out of Pusan aboard ship. Then we learned where we were going. We had to do our planning in that short period of time as how we're going to do it. And how difficult was that? What, what was going through your mind in terms of the planning phase? A lot of people talk about how 
dangerous the Incheon landing was given the uh, the difficult terrain, especially the large mud fields that are revealed at low tide. What was the planning like? Did you have any concerns about the operation? The planning was that we were land at high tide. The problem with the Incheon landing from a normal landing, normally we land at dawn. This we're going to land at sunset. Mm. We're going to land into a populated area. We never land in populated areas. We're going to be going over a seawall. We're not going to be dropping front end of the LST and walk off. We're going to be climbing up a ladder. So these are different things, things that were different from our normal training. However, it worked out. There were two landings at Inchon. There was the morning landing on Womido by the 3rd Battalion 5th Marines. And then at sunset, it was the main landing of the first and second battalions. And Wolmido is the island off the harbor, is that correct? Well, it's an island, but it's connected by a causeway. And what was the significance of capturing that island before making the main landing on Incheon? It would have been able to fire right across at us. And did you find that the North Koreans were indeed surprised by the amphibious landing, or did you get the sense that they were more prepared than one might expect in a surprise attack? I happened to run into the main defense, but I don't think that they really expected it. How did you find the training and discipline of the North Korean soldiers that you met at Incheon? Were they a fighting force that was equivalent to the kind of units that you saw during... No, they surrendered fast. You mentioned that you landed at Incheon at sunset. And of course, Incheon is a major city, and it's also right next to Seoul, which is another major city. And those are the battlefields in the, the days after the Incheon landing. How did you deal with the dense urban environment. What were the challenges? What were some of the things that you remember from that battle? One of the things that we did at Camp Pendleton was to train in combat in towns. We had an artificial town built so that we could learn how to fight in cities or towns. So it wasn't what we were used to, but it wasn't all that bad. At the Inchon Landing, Lieutenant Lopez, he was one of my platoon leaders, was machine gunned across the chest as he was attacking a pillbox. And he had a live hand grenade, and he fell on the hand grenade, swept under his body to save the other people around him. And that was an extremely brave act. He was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Your company made another strategic amphibious landing, I believe, in at the North Korean port city of Wonsan. Let me correct that. What happened? What happened at Wonsan? We were going to do that. We were prepared to do that. But when we got to Wonsan, we found that the harbor was full of mines. So for six days, we went back and forth while the mine clearing ships cleared the mines for us. By the time that we got into shore, the Army had taken Wonsan, and they already had added U.S. OSHA. Then we boarded a train to go up to Hongnam. Mm -hmm. 
train and truck. So when the Marines reached Hungnam and uh, began joining the front lines again, could you give us an understanding of what time period this is in the season? Is this around Thanksgiving? It's late October, early November, and we were pretty well up and at the reservoir by mid-November. Matter of fact, I took a company-sized patrol on the west side of the reservoir in late November, and I captured two Chinese. And I turned those Chinese over to battalion, and they went to regiment, and they went to division, and they went to corps, and finally back to MacArthur. MacArthur said, there's no Chinese in this war. Right, and this is, of course, the uh, prelude to the major invasion of Korea by the Chinese, quote-unquote, volunteer forces. These were advanced scouts. Before then, though, there were, of course, stories about how U.S. servicemen believed that they would be home by Christmas. Did it really feel like that for you as well when you had landed in Wonsan and was taking position around the Chosun Reservoir? After we got up to the Chosun Reservoir, that was the general feeling. And as a matter of fact, myself and our battalion commander were relieved and put on an airplane and sent home in late November. The war was over. We were the first guys out. My unit, I was the only company grade officer that had not been killed or wounded. So you got out right before the the Chinese intervention really began in the winter of 1950. That's right. I got out of there on Thanksgiving. That was a couple weeks before the Chinese came in force. The reservoir that you're speaking of is the Chosun Reservoir that's been made famous by the Marine Corps stand there during the Chinese offensive in the winter of 1950. Could you briefly explain what the strategic importance of the reservoir was? I don't think it was at all. Oh, I see. You just have to be, a, just have to be there. The Marines were headed for the Yellow River, mm-hmm. and they were going up the east coast of the peninsula. And this just happens to be on the way when the counteroffensive began by the Chinese. Yes. And could you perhaps tell us a little bit about why it was so important for the Marines to not retreat from that position? when the U.N. forces were surprised by the Chinese counteroffensive? Well, actually, the Marines did retreat all the way to Hanlun, mm-hmm. but they fought their way all the way. Right, right. And it came out as a unit. And my understanding is that that rearguard action bought the, not just the, of course, other U.S. U.N. forces, but also a large number of civilians a lot of time to evacuate from the area. About 100,000. Oh, that's very yeah. significant. Absolutely. And do you know where the Marines, after they were able to make it out of the Battle of the Chosun Reservoir to the port of Hamhung, where they were able to retreat to thereafter? Well, the ships took them down to South Korea. Mm-hmm. I flew to Busan, but I was long gone. The war does last until 1953. What was your feelings towards how the events were developing? Well, I was in the States training troops. Mm-hmm. You know, I really knew no more than other people who read the newspapers right. at the time. It looked like that war should have been over two years 
sooner. After the war, you had a very successful business career in San Francisco. And in 2009, you started the Korean War Memorial Foundation. Um, may I ask, what prompted you to start this organization? Well, for years, we were having a luncheon in September in memory of the Korean War for Korean War veterans. At the, we have a club in the town, the Marines Memorial, owned and operated by Marines. And after the one in 08, I guess, we started talking about we ought to have a memorial here. So a small group of us got together and started looking for a place to put it. And also building an organization that would raise money for it. We raised about four and a half million dollars. And of course, the Korean government was the most generous donor with a million dollars. As a result of your hard work, there is a beautiful, very solemn monument today in San Francisco overlooking Golden Gate Bridge. Was there any special significance of the memorial's placement, its location? Yes, two. We were offered four locations at the Presidio. None of them as attractive as the one we selected. It's also on the 38th parallel. I didn't know about the 38th parallel. That's incredible that it's on the same latitude as the Korean Peninsula. Now that the memorial is built, what is your foundation focused on today? Education. We have a person dedicated to promoting education, and our thought is to train people to teach it, because the Korean veterans are rapidly disappearing. For example, I'm 98. As you are reaching out to the next generation of Americans to tell them more about the Korean War and the enormous sacrifice that the U.S. Marines have made, and of course, the U.S. servicemen in general have made in the war. Do you have any particular message that you want to send to the American people about the Korean War and about your service? The Korean people really appreciated our being there. Of all the countries in the world that America has helped, there are only two that really appreciate it. One is Korea and one is Australia. And that's something that you hope that the American people would remember more heartedly. I hope so. That was Colonel John Stevens. And now, I will read a brief letter from Ambassador Kathleen Stevens, former U.S. Ambassador to South Korea. Dear Private Parker, we are neighbors. I first learned of you a year ago while walking through the small cemetery next to my cabin on the shores of quiet Milner Lake near tiny, remote Troy, Montana. I spotted your modest gravestone, relating your life and your service, overgrown by the native elder shrub and shaded by towering ponderosa pine trees. I'm only your part-time neighbor. I live most of the year in Washington, D.C., but I'm back in Montana now, arriving just after American Memorial Day at the end of May. Milner Lake Cemetery is dotted with the graves of veterans from all of America's 20th century wars and on most of them, American flags have been placed to mark Memorial Day. But there was none on yours, despite 
or perhaps because of the fact that unlike the others, you did not live to return home to join a veterans organization to reminisce about the past. Your young life ended in Korea almost 70 years ago, and so I write you and about you today. Like you, I grew up in the vast American West. Like you, I went to Korea young when I was 21 years old. But you were even younger, just 20 years old. And you went not out of choice but by duty. Conscription was still required of young American men. You were too young to have served in World War II, and you were probably only recently conscripted when North Korean forces crossed the 30th parallel on June 25, 1950. And President Truman made the momentous decision, one he later described as the most important of his presidency, to defend the Republic of Korea. And so you, a just-turned 20-year-old from the mountains of Montana, arrived with the 34th Infantry of the 24th Division in Korea on July 3, 1950. The first U.S. forces in Korea after June 25th, Task Force Smith, had just been routed. Your job was to do better. Your battalion in Pyeongtaek was attacked by North Korean forces on July 6th. You held for five hours and then fell back to Chonan. By July 12th, you had retreated to Gongju, where your battalion defended 34 miles along the Gum River. There was division, dissent, confusion, and casualties among your commanding officers. North Korean tanks and forces were surrounding you, and you had scarce defenses. Your unit suffered huge losses. You fell back again to defend Daejeon along the Gapcheon River, and then to Gochang, from where your unit moved east. By the beginning of August, the remaining survivors from your unit had retreated and regrouped at the Nakdong River, joining in establishing the Busan perimeter, defending it at further huge cost to military and civilian life until the Incheon landing in September turned the tide of the war. But you never made it to the Nakdong River. You died on July 30, 1950. Like so many Koreans and Americans, civilian and military, your life ended in those horrendous early days of a brutal war. Now I only have the inscriptions on your tombstone to instruct me on the last month of your life. That is all I can piece together about your time in Korea. I have many questions. What were you thinking during that July of 1950 as you retreated ever southward from one unsustainable position to another, outmanned, outgunned, disorganized, as you saw suffering, destruction, and death all around you? Why are you in a quiet grave at remote Milner Lake and not at Arlington National Cemetery or some other fine military cemetery? Perhaps your mother was so heartbroken at losing you that she wanted you close, with a view of the mountains and the lake to comfort you, and where she could visit you. I can only speculate. But I want to tell you that your sacrifice was not without meaning, and it is not forgotten. I want to tell you that I went to Korea 25 years after you did, at a far easier time, and I had the chance to walk in the hills, along the rivers, and among the people of Cheonan, Gongju, and Daejeon. I can tell you that the Korean people I met then remember the suffering and also the sacrifice. They told me it had created a blood-forged relationship between Koreans and Americans that they were committed to building a Korea worthy of the terrible price and human suffering that had been paid for the survival of the Republic of Korea. I witnessed Korea's rise in the decades since. I watched how Koreans, against all odds, built a thriving economy and a robust democracy. And I've seen the relationship between Korea and the United States grow even broader, with our security and economic ties deepened by the vitality of our people-to-people -people ties and our shared values. 
I wish you could see yourself how Korea had become an exemplary global power, how Koreans have stood with the United States these 70 years, and how we remain friends and partners even. And I hope, especially now, at a time of deep social and economic crisis in the world, at a time when we Americans must renew our own domestic struggle to live up to our values of equality, justice, and human rights. Private Parker, I wish you had survived that terrible July of 1950 in Korea, that you had returned to your family in Montana to live out your life, and that you were now my 90-year-old neighbor in Milner Lake. We could watch the osprey flying over the water and soaring above the mountain peaks as we recall the past and consider the future. I grieve for your life ended too soon. And when the armistice was signed in 1953, it was an unsatisfying, incomplete moment. There remains unfinished business on the Korean Peninsula and in our own beloved America. But the rise of the Republic of Korea to its respected standing in the world today puts the lie to the post-armistice notion that it was a die for a tie. Instead, the words inscribed in the Korean War Memorial in Washington, D.C. capture the shared gratitude of Americans and Koreans alike. Our nation honors her sons and daughters who answered the call to defend a country they never knew and a people they never met. So, Private Parker, I put flowers on your gravestone on this lovely June day and hope that in 2020, Americans and Koreans can again work together with resolve and with wisdom to confront today's historic challenges inspired and humbled by your sacrifice. Sincerely, Kathleen Stevens. That's it for our episode today. See you next week.